Welcome to Guidepost, the cutting-edge podcast series produced by the CRISPR Journal. Hello, I'm Kevin Davis, Executive Editor of the CRISPR Journal. Thanks for joining us. In a moment, my interview with Dana Carroll, one of the pioneers of genome editing. This episode of Guidepost is brought to you by Synthego, providing you with genome engineering solutions such as synthetic single-guide RNAs, and CRISPR-engineered cells, Synthego. And by the CRISPR Journal, publishing the latest research, analysis, and opinion in the field of CRISPR biology and genome editing. My guest on this episode of Guidepost is Dana Carroll, who was instrumental in the development of zinc finger nucleases, the genome editing tool that predates CRISPR-Cas by a full decade. He has seen tools he helped create to make major inroads into the clinic, and witnessed the arrival of CRISPR, which has taken genome editing into myriad uncharted territories. Dana had a long and distinguished career at the University of Utah, and although he closed his lab last year, he remains a vital presence on the genome editing circuit, with a particular interest now in leading community engagement efforts uh, on the broad applications and ramifications of genome editing. In our conversation, Dana reflects on two decades of research in genome editing and ruminates on some of the broader issues impacting the scientific community. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode of Guidepost by Dana Carroll from the University of Utah. Dana, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy uh, to be here. Good. Uh, you've had a, a very important role in the development of uh, gene editing that predates CRISPR. Um, and it's always, I think, worth uh, remembering that uh, gene editing didn't just come along in a tidy bundle in 2012. And uh, so this is a great chance uh, for us to kind of explore some of what happened in the early years, gene editing via zinc finger nucleases, which you um, uh, played a key role in developing, are still alive and well and in the clinic. Keen to get your perspective on that and uh, the rest of the field of gene editing. Where would you like to start? You're a biochemist by training, is that fair? Yeah, molecular biologist, I would say. My PhD was in chemistry, but I wasn't seeing anything very exciting in pure chemistry. I wanted to see something with the biological applications. And I was very fortunate to do a postdoc in Don Brown's lab Mm. uh, at the Carnegie Institution Mm. in, in Baltimore and uh, found my niche uh, looking at DNA. Mm. Was, was that in, in, in any sort of editing context or manipulation context? No, we had very poor tools at the yeah. time, as you can imagine. Yeah. Um, but it, it was the beginning of what I think we call the, the DNA era, yeah. because uh, when I went to Baltimore, I was the first person in that department to run a, an agarose slab gel. Oh, wow. I was the first person to use a restriction enzyme. Gosh. And I was the first person to make a molecular clone. Okay. So this is in the uh, 1972 to 75 right. period. Right. And this is when some of those tools are just emerging. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, students these days, uh, postdocs, don't understand that there was an era before cloning and PCR, uh, but in fact, there was. There was an old gen seek, not just a next gen <laughs> seek, and southern blots and all that good stuff. Well, and southern blots were developed, yeah. um, I think, Ed 75, Southern's, yeah. Ed P- southern's yeah. paper was 75. Um, it was the no-seek era, yes. uh, basically. Uh, George Brownlee, um, who'd uh, been in uh, uh, the Sanger lab, yeah. uh, 
they were doing some things with uh, sequencing RNA, so they would transcribe DNA into yeah, RNA yeah. and then do RNA fingerprinting right. of the type that Bob Holly did to sequence the first tRNA okay. uh, to try to figure out the DNA sequence through the RNA transcript. Yes. yes. Uh, so the, the tools have matured yes. significantly and expanded since since that time. Yes. Yes. Where and when and how did your interest in zinc fingers begin? Can you remember the uh, that that moment? Uh, there are a few moments that came together. Yeah, I had worked for a long time on DNA repair and recombination, mm -hmm. and the interest uh, em emerged for me from looking at repeated genes, which I had done in Don Brown's lab, ribosomal genes mm. and five S RNA genes, mm. and talking about their family evolution in terms of crossovers, mm, recombination. Mm, mm. And so I, I began to get more and more interested in recombination and ultimately other types of, mm. of DNA repair. Mm. And it became clear from going to meetings and doing the experiments we were doing that uh, the interesting things that, that happen to DNA, rearrangements, recombination, and so forth, were uh, very strongly stimulated by double-strand breaks in all sorts of natural situations. So double-strand breaks stimulate recombination. I'm sitting in Utah, where Mario Capecchi has developed this magnificent method for uh, doing homologous replacements in uh, mouse embryonic stem cells and generating mice from them. And, you know, it was a, a fabulous contribution to yeah. mammalian genetics. But the per cell frequency of the homologous uh, recombination leading to the knock-ins and knock-outs, yeah. it was terrible. Yeah. It was one in a million cells, and, you know, I knew some of his students and postdocs, sometimes it was one in a billion cells oh that actually enjoyed the modification they were trying to make. And so the genius of Mario's technology was applying this very powerful selection uh, for the integrated marker they wanted and against the events that put it into the wrong place. So what I was thinking was, well, we know from studies of recombination that if you can make a double-strand break, you have you've locally stimulated the interest of cells in uh, homologous repair of that break. So a student in my lab, Dave Siegel, who's still working with zinc fingers, mm -hmm. uh, did some experiments with ISCE1 in the xenopozoocyte system that uh, we'd been using to study recombination events mm -hmm. uh, to show that, sure enough, ISCE1 cuts stimulate recombination in that system. Mm -hmm. And we had a collaboration looking at targeting potentially recombinogenic damage with triplex-forming oligonucleotides mm -hmm. that had a sorolin attached to them. Mm -hmm. But we had talked for quite some time about uh, using DNA recognition to reconstitute a cleavage activity. So just for example, if you had two tri triplex-forming oligos that would bind to DNA sequences close to each other, and each of those had one half of a nuclease, which would only be active when they, you know, both bound, then, you know, maybe we could target double-strand breaks. And we never got to the point of actually doing that. But Chandra's PNAS paper in 1996 basically did what 
Ah. We'd been thinking about ah, okay. tethering a DNA binding domain yeah. to a DNA cleavage domain. Right. And so in February of 1996, <clears throat> uh, Dave Siegel came into the lab office where yeah. I was sitting yeah. and showed me Chandra's paper uh-huh. of the zinc finger. And fusion. Chandra is just for the people who aren't familiar. Uh, is uh, uh, Srinivasan Chandrasegaran, who's at Johns Hopkins right. University right. School of Public Health. And Chandra had been working on modifying the specificity of uh, FOC1 as a restriction enzyme. He yeah. was calling these chimeric restriction endonucleases. Yeah. And the first fusions he made uh, were uh, the cleavage domain from FOC1 with a DNA binding domain from a Drosophila transcription factor. And FOC1 will cut anything, correct? The cleavage domain will cut anything, and yeah. it has a separate DNA binding right. domain that does the recognition. And right. so he wisely said, well, what if I throw away the natural yeah. uh, recognition domain yeah. and put on somebody else's recognition yeah. domain? Can I redirect cleavage? Yeah. And he was using... Uh, Initially, the DNA binding domain from a, a homeobox protein okay. from a Drosophila. Yeah. But his second attempt was with zinc fingers that he had gotten from Jeremy Berg's lab, also at Hopkins. Um, and the reason we got excited was because uh, this is his two-domain protein. And I knew about zinc fingers from other sources, including... We had had a, maybe the year or a couple of years before, we'd had a seminar by Nikola Pavlitich, who had solved the structure of zinc fingers bound to DNA in Carl Pabo's lab in 1991. Uh, And uh, so we were primed to understand the potential of this zinc finger FOC1 fusion. Yeah. So I called Chandra. I had never met him. Yeah. I... Phone, you know, found his phone number, uh-huh. uh, landline, you know. Yes, of course. <laughs> and I imagine Dave Siegel running to you with, I mean, was it the like the the, the telephone book issue of the BNES, print, the print you know, version, it's, you know, right. it's buried in a thousand articles is this jewel of a paper. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's great. So you've called so out Chandra. I call. So Chandra's recollection is that uh, he didn't answer the first few calls and so there were multiple messages on his answering machine from this guy Dana Carroll whom he'd never met yeah and eventually he calls me back and I proposed a collaboration based on the zinc finger folk one fusions that he had and our oocyte assay for recombination recombination events that required a double strand break okay so could we could we use his targetable uh, break inducer yeah. uh, in a genuine eukaryotic cell? Yeah. And uh, so he agreed, and you know we got the collaboration set up. And as often happens, we did the uh, the money experiment first <laughs> as quickly as we could, yeah. and uh, got things to work fairly quickly, and then we. We went back and began sort of uh, dissecting yeah. the what we now call the ZFNs to see how they they actually work. And uh, he hadn't known prior to that that you required dimerization. It wasn't uh. known for the natural folk one uh. Uh, until we had begun working on it. Uh. But between us, we uh, 
figured out that dimerization had to happen. Yeah. We were looking at the relationship between the linker between the protein domains yeah. and the spacing between the zinc finger binding sites and sort of working it all out and then applying that back to the oocytes to get really efficient cleavage and recombination. Yeah. Yeah. And are you thinking, uh, what, 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 were you thinking about editing as a, you know, f- the further afield, as w- w- what this technology could be used for, or what, what, what was the sort of the, the mean, what was the end for the means, so, so to speak? We were absolutely thinking about editing. Yeah. Um, you know, there'd been experiments uh, that Maria Jason and a, a few other people had been doing uh, using ISCE1 yeah. in mammalian cells, showing that. Uh, if you put in a recognition site for ISCE1, yeah. that uh, you could then stimulate local mutagenesis and recombination. And so, absolutely, that was yeah. in our minds. Yeah. I like to say that uh, people overlook the fact that Jim Haber had actually, uh, quite a few years before uh, ISCE1 in mammalian cells, shown that you could use both the HO nuclease and ISCE1 uh, to to make targeted double-strand breaks and simulate recombination yeah. in yeast. Yeah. And uh, i just like to give Jim credit for that. <laughs> and so your um, seminal papers on zinc finger nucleases, ZFNs, they came out in 2001, 2002, that time frame? So the, the first paper on the uh, biochemical stuff was 2000. Uh, the first one about oocytes was 2001. Right. And uh, while those papers were being put together, we decided that uh, we should be doing this in real organisms. Yeah. That, you know, to do it in a sort of a mock-up in, in the xenopozoocyte with a synthetic target was fine. Yeah. And we learned that this works. Yeah. But we needed to do it in a real organism. And instead of going to mammalian cells or something like that, yeah. uh, we decided to go to Drosophila. Okay. And we... I'd never worked with Drosophila before, so yeah. I went to my friend Kent Gallick, who's uh-huh. in the biology department at Utah, and asked if he would help. Yeah. Uh, Kent had already just published a uh, method for doing gene targeting in Drosophila uh-huh. that involved uh, releasing the donor DNA as a linear molecule in fly larvae. Okay. And what we decided that we could do is add activation of the target yeah. uh, by, by making a ZFN-induced break. Yeah. So Kent's efficiency, the best they ever did was about 1 in 500 okay. uh, gene targeting yeah. with this uh, donor release process. Yeah. And so uh, Kent showed us what to do and how to do it, and we were... Uh, I had a postdoc and a technician actually working in Kent's research space uh, to try this out right. in Drosophila. Right. Um, so by 2002, you have a, um, a robust uh, gene editing tool um, that we now, we've, we've known for a while, but has been commercially um, adapted and um, deployed by Sangamo um, Therapeutics. Bioscience, they've, they've changed a bit of the name. But um, how did you, what has been your, um, Sangamon must have come to you at some point to uh, uh, get, <laughs> get, get the license or, or the IP? Right. So um, there's a little bit of an interesting backstory. When we had begun working with the ZFNs, yeah. 
I realized that what we needed was uh, some guidance in how to alter the specificity. Right. And so we, we ended up doing that uh, with help from Carlos Barbas's lab, which was great. Uh, at the Scripps okay. uh, Research Institute. But I also had heard from somebody that Sangamo in its, in its initial incarnation, which was in Colorado, uh, was doing some, you know, they, they, the company had been uh, initiated based on zinc finger technology, and they were thinking more about transcription factors at the time, right. synthetic transcription factors. Right. So I actually called up Ed, uh, Edward... Lanfear, sorry, yes. Edward Lanfear, who yes. was the uh, founding founder yeah. of, of Sangamo, and I asked him if they would help us out. Uh-huh. Uh, told him what we were up to. He yeah. says, "Oh no, you know, we won't build anything for you. If you if we've got something you'd like to have, you know, you can have it." But uh, they weren't willing to really engage. Okay. So we, fortunately, we got some help from the Barbus Lab and. Uh, then put together, you know, Carlos was trying to develop rules for what, what triplets in DNA each finger recognizes. So we're, we made novel combinations based on uh, the rules that they were beginning to try to figure okay. out. So Sangamo initially wasn't interested, but then by uh, the early 2000s there in uh, the Bay Area, yeah. And when our papers uh, began coming out, yeah. particularly, I think, the, the ones in Drosophila, yeah. they started thinking, whoa, we've got the IP for zinc fingers. Yeah. Looks like there's a plausible application here. As uh, an editing tool rather editing than a gene activation right. modulation tool. Yeah. And they already had uh, ownership of some of the IP, but we had... Uh, applied for and eventually gotten a uh, patent okay. on the application for targeted mutagenesis. Okay. Yep. And so they uh, licensed that from right. the University of Utah. Okay. And so that's been my only formal yeah. arrangement with, yeah. with uh, Sangamo. Yeah. But I've had a lot of scientific interactions with their scientists. Yes. Yes. And so help us, I mean, this is sort of, it's your baby in a way. This is, this is a ZFN's uh, tool that you've created. And um, so what, what have been, what, what, what are your reflections as you've seen this um, be, the tool become uh, refined and of course making its first entry into the clinic, what, 10 years ago now, yeah. correct? Yeah. How, how has it gone? <laughs> I think Sangamo uh, did exactly the right things with the technology that they acquired. Okay. And you have to admire them for that. They, they, they acquired uh, a company that w- was originally established in, in England, this Gendak, who was Aaron Klug's company. Yeah. Aaron Klug and Yen Chu. Uh, and they had developed a lot of the uh, two-finger uh, combinations and looked at their specificity and looked how to best combine them into uh-huh. longer... Uh, zinc finger arrays. Yeah. So Sangamo acquired that. They did a lot of research themselves to, to perf- really perfect the recognition side of things. Right. Um, so they, they enhanced the technology with their own research. They focused largely on heading toward clinical applications, but along the way had collaborations with people who are working on 
zebrafish and plants and uh, mammalian cells and xenopus, you know, to, to sort of guide the way toward yeah. applications in a lot of different organisms. Yeah. And people complained throughout that time. Uh, you can talk to Keith Jung or uh, Dan Voitas or Matt Porteous, and uh, th they kind of felt as if Sangamo, by, by withholding the best of the zinc finger design technology that they were uh, sort of restraining trade in the area. Mm. Um, I didn't feel that way. There was nothing Sangamo ever did that inhibited what I wanted to do. Okay. Um, and I thought they were approaching this in the way you would want a company to do it by right. uh, enhancing the technology and going toward uh, the specific clinical applications. Right, right. Um, 2000, so they first entered the clinic um, in, in the HIV arena. Um, and then, of course, we come to the 2011 to 12 to 13 era with the explosion of interest in, in CRISPR. Um, you know, how, it's a sort of very naive question, but how would you, uh, one of CRISPR's great strengths is that it's just its ease of use and deployment. So how would you kind of balance those, those <laughs> two? Is it, so, do, do you feel almost sort of remorse that, you know, why, why couldn't zinc fingers be, be like, like CRISPR? Absolutely not. <laughs> I love CRISPR. Okay. I've, I've used it yeah. multiple times myself. Yeah. Um, so, can we insert talons momentarily? Of course, please. All right. Yeah. So, uh, when the TAL recognition code was published yeah. in uh, 2009, okay. uh, we recognized right away that this could be fused to the FOC1 domain. It was an independent DNA binding domain, uh, and people rapidly began to do that. And we worked with talons for a while. Uh -huh. And I've written someplace pity the poor talons, because the talons were easier to design yeah. than the ZFNs. Yeah. Um, but they had such a brief time in the limelight before CRISPR came along. Right. Uh, so talons would have been the method of choice for research if it hadn't been for CRISPR. I see. Right. Just because of the ease of design. Right. And in our experience, almost all of the talon designs worked really well. Yeah. So their, uh, you know, the design density and, you know, for any particular target and the design efficacy yeah. uh, were as good as or better than CRISPR has been. Wow. But they still have some, some disadvantages. Uh, right now, for research purposes, unless there's something that's very strange about your application, you'd be nuts not to use CRISPR. Yeah. Absolutely right. nuts. Right. Uh, it's so easy to deploy in lots and lots of different systems. Right. But uh, the talons and the ZFNs still have still have their niches, and as uh, we were talking about a, a little while ago, they're still being used. And Sangamo has a few applications in the clinic, um, based partly on the intellectual property ownership. Yeah. But also partly on particular characteristics of, of the ZFNs, yeah. uh, the ways they can be delivered. Uh -huh. um, and all three of the platforms have de been developed to the point yeah. where they have comparable efficacy, comparable efficiency, and comparable specificity. Okay. So okay. Uh, I think if I get 
asked by somebody in the commercial arena, yeah. you know, which platform should yeah. we be looking at? I always say that if you're targeting one or a few genomic loci and you've got, you're going to target them over and over again, yes. the uh, development of your targeting tool is going to be a small part of the time and expense of the overall project. Right. And so it doesn't matter which platform you use. Right. You can use other criteria to choose. Right. I'm not sure that the CRISPR IP situation is really getting clearer. Right. <laughs> Although, you know, how many patents have been issued? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, uh, and before we leave uh, Talons, Dana, uh, Talons or, or Mega Talons are also on the verge of uh, moving into the clinic. Um, so, that, so, as you say, uh, somewhat overlooked, but uh, in, at Bluebird, and I don't know if there are other companies, um, there's, there's great potential in that platform as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, redesigning uh, the ZFNs is hard for an individual to do, yes. an individual lab, yes. but Sangamo does it uh, very expeditiously and yeah. they can target. You, know, you could ask uh, some of the people from Sangamo, but they claim that, that their design density is now uh, comparable to CRISPR's design density, right. meaning that if you've, if you've got a region of the genome that you right. want to be able to access, that um, you can design as many ZFN pairs into yes. that region as yes. you can design guide RNAs. Um, so you mentioned sort of the three main um, gene editing platforms and a, a fourth, or maybe it's three asterisk, is base editing. What, what is your, that's, which has, uh, again, exploded on the scene just in the last right. two or three years. Um, what, uh, what's your sort of... Uh, uh, critique or uh, impression of the potential of base editing as both a research tool and a therapeutic tool potentially. Yeah, kudos to uh, those people. Yeah, uh, Alexis Comor and yeah. uh, uh, Nicole Godelli and, yeah. and David Liu. Yeah, um, it's re it's really been a, a marvelous lesson. Yeah, in the application of our understanding of biology and biochemistry mm. to editing mm. um, because they had to understand how these processes work uh, in order to develop the tools mm. that they did. Mm. Um, and I think it's been a marvelous addition. Yeah. Um, and I, to me, anything that uh, in, in increases the power, augments the power of our ability to change genomes yeah. and the way genomes are expressed yeah. is, is wonderful. I, yes. have, I have no attachment to any particular platform yes. or, or design. Right. right. So uh, I didn't get into it to, to, to advance the prominence of zinc fingers. Yes. Uh, I got into this yes. because uh, yes. I understood how double-strand breaks uh, <laughs> make targeted yeah. uh, targeted alterations possible. Yes. In terms of um, charting a course for the therapeutic, the successful therapeutic deployment of gene editing, whether it's CRISPR or any of the other uh, zinc fingers or any of the uh, uh, tools that we now have in the toolbox, um, what, how would you sort of handicap the, the chances? What are the, what are the um, 
do you consider the biggest hurdles that have to be dissolved? I'm thinking it could be the delivery systems, or we've seen a paper just published, first reported last year, about potentially uh, potential immune um, uh, effects, uh, responses in some patients um, off targets. Some claim off targets can be solved. This isn't not, not an issue, but that may not uphold for other people. Um, is any one of those, or something I haven't mentioned, of particular nagging concern in terms of limiting the, the, the potential success of this system? I think the biggest one is getting to the point where homologous repair is really the majority outcome uh, to these editing uh, processes. Yeah. Because as I've said over and over again and other people say, all we're doing with the uh, the sort of standard CRISPR, Talon, and yeah. uh, ZFN platforms is making a break in DNA. Yeah. And then we're totally reliant on what the target yeah. cells yeah. are able to do to repair those breaks. Yeah. And we're still floundering in this region where uh, we're having trouble really dramatically enhancing the homologous outcomes. So people have been nibbling at the edges of this for a long time. You know, how can we get, uh, you know, reduce non-homologous outcomes and enhance homologous outcomes? And there are ways to do that, but none of them has been the silver bullet that's gotten to the point where we can really confidently, in lots of different cell types, mm. uh, get the homologous repair up to a level where we can talk more about the correction mm. types mm. of therapeutic applications and right. less about the knockout types. Right, right. And then the, I think the second biggest one is yeah. the one you mentioned first, uh -huh. which is uh, delivery. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's both uh, delivery, getting things into lots of cells, and then the targeted delivery to the specific cells of yeah. interest. Yeah. Um, so still, I think the... You know, some of the most effective approaches are going to be the ones where we can make modifications ex vivo uh, and then uh, put things back, or in in vivo situations yes. where we can have have access. Yes. For example, in the liver, almost everything goes into cells in the liver, yes. uh, no matter how you're trying to do delivery. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> so hepatocytes are kind of a good target. Yes. And then some of the things where, where you can do physical, physically targeted delivery in the eye, in skeletal muscle, and, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Um, in the last uh, few minutes, I want to talk about some, some more of the um, ethical questions that are surrounding this field. Um, I know that you were, um, uh, perhaps you can first sort of describe the, um, you're an advisor or with the IGI, the Innovative Genomics Institute that Jennifer Doudna um, co-directs and, and launched uh, in Berkeley. So um, I'll quickly describe my yeah. uh, association with the IGI. I went there on sabbatical four years ago ah. and spent 10 months working in Jacob Korn's lab. Yes. Uh, Mark DeWitt and I, who was a postdoc uh, yes. in Jacob's lab at the time, were the ones that initiated their project on yes. sickle cell disease. Yes. Uh, uh, there's a paper published on that. Um, while I was there, I started a CRISPR course, uh, which we taught for three summers, 2015, 16, 17. Um, and uh, if you look at their website now, I'm still, I'm, my picture is still on the website. I'm not sure what they call me. I call myself sort of a foreign associate. Uh, 
<laughs> but just recently, um, uh, it looks like I'm going to be going back to IGI part-time uh -huh. uh, to help them with their policy and social yeah. issue and outreach yeah. uh, projects. That's right. a sort of a fledgling part of uh, the IGI. Yes. Because they've you know, they have uh, robust and growing programs in uh, biomedical, uh, the biomedical area, in the agricultural area, yes. in the uh, discovery area. Yes. Um, and, uh, and I'm very interested now in uh, having more of the sort of societal, uh, uh, being more involved in the societal aspects yes. of genome editing. Yes. And I've already begun to... Uh, talk with uh, public groups less as an educator and more of a receiver uh -huh. of information yeah. from non-scientists. Yeah. If I tell you a little bit more about what you're up to, you know, many of you may have heard about CRISPR, but let me, let me just try to put a little, uh, little gloss of reality on yeah. what we are trying to do and are able to do and are not able to do. Yeah. And then tell me how you think about this. Tell yeah. me, you know, if I propose some applications, yeah. uh, those things you'd like to see done, yes. are you comfortable with those? Yes. Uh, and this is one of the things I'd like to be able to do more of through the IGI, right. is uh, engage in these public discussions. Right. Because the scientists in this field keep talking about how we have yeah. to have more public involvement. Yeah. and Someone's got to lead that, yeah. 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 And I think it, the wrong forum is having Jennifer stand up, uh, Jennifer Doudna stand up and speak to a large audience uh, from whom she will only get, you know, little bits of feedback. Yeah. I think a better way to do it yeah. is to do it in situations where feedback yeah. is the goal. Right. And uh, in those situations, even though you'd be working with a, potentially a smaller group, uh, there should be a ripple effect where those, the people who've, who've thought about it more and uh, begun to speak about it more will go out and do this with their friends and their friends' friends and, you know, other groups that they're associated with. Right. So that's the sort of thing I'm hoping to do. Jennifer has played a very creditable and important role in um, bringing scientists and other groups together to begin talking about the ethical right. issues around uh, gene editing um, going back to 2015, if not before. Yeah. And you were, I believe, one of the attendees of the, really perhaps the first CRISPR-focused um, um, or inspired um, uh, Meeting, I guess it was a retreat in in wine country in in Napa. Um, uh, what are your recollections of that? Because that led to, I think, an important uh, essay that was published in Science, just as the first gene editing human embryo experiment was about to be published um, from right. a group in China. Right. So that retreat, I think, was quite important in getting people with a number of different perspectives, including some of us who had been involved in the uh, genome editing field for a while, yeah. really focused on um, the things that could be done beyond what we were doing currently and uh, how people were going to react to it and how we should begin to sort of set, set standards within the field yeah. for how this should be approached. Yeah. There are some of us who are looking back at the 
the gene therapy attempts uh, from 15 or 20 or more years ago, 15 or 20 years ago, um, that had sort of run afoul of uh, unintended effects. Uh, there were people there who uh, were familiar with the whole stem cell uh, situation. You talk about trying to put constraints around um, going off and using stem cells uh, therapeutically in situations where uh, it really wasn't appropriate. So, you know, really getting uh, people to think about it in a more yeah. organized way. Yeah. And it was fairly shortly after that that the uh, first yeah. summit meeting uh, on gene, human gene editing yes. took place in Washington, and I was there. Yeah. I didn't give a talk, but I was there. Yeah. And I learned a lot from the non-scientists yeah. who spoke and with whom I spoke you know, yeah. uh, off the podium yeah. uh, about how other people were thinking about it. And one of the things that emerged to me from that was, uh, how are we going to distribute these high-tech therapies once they're finally to the point where we feel comfortable yeah. uh, with them, how are we going to distribute them to the people who are yeah. going to need them most around the world? Yeah. Is this going to be another example of a therapy for the wealthy yeah. and uh, you know, the, the others in the world who will just languish? Yes. And so one of the things that I haven't been involved with directly because I have have no good ideas about it, but I've been trying to encourage other, some of the, en the genuine engineers to think about it is, since the diagnostic uh, tools, including you know, microarrays and DNA sequencing and PCR-based uh, diagnostics, yeah. have been miniaturized and made so inexpensive, you can take them out into the wild yeah. and uh, you know, use a blood sample or a saliva sample to see yeah. uh, what viral infection somebody's got or, yeah. or whatever. The diagnostic tools have been miniaturized to the point where uh, you can take them all around the world. Yes. Is there a way to conceive of uh, making the therapeutic applications distributable? Right, right. Um, you were in Hong Kong. Yes. At the end of, <laughs> end of last year for a remarkable, uh, a remarkable week. Um, what were your reflections? What, what, do you, what did you take away from... Uh, uh, the appearance of uh, Hu Jiankui and, and that whole story about the CRISPR babies. Yeah, I thought it was good that uh, pretty much everybody, uh, all of the scientists, uh, reacted to that by saying, this should never have been done. Uh, perhaps at some point we'll be at the point where we're comfortable with the technology, yeah. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, uh, and it could be applied yeah. similarly to this, but it was really irresponsible, beyond irresponsible, yes. for uh, J.K. Hu to have done this. Mm. Um, so that was that was comforting to see. It was disturbing to see that he had done it. Uh, I would say the two things that might result from this would be distressing. Would be first of all that somebody, some other people, would think the door is now open. We're doing this this too, yeah. and the technology is absolutely not ready for that. Yeah. Uh, as he unfortunately sort of demonstrated. Right. Um, and the other thing would be that uh, regulations would come down from authorities in various countries that would inhibit the research that's necessary to get to the point where embryo editing really would be safe and effective. Mm -hmm. 
Are there any, you've been following this, you were at the, 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 the DC, the first uh, genome editing uh, sort of ethics meeting um, three years ago. Are you persuaded that there are some scenarios where in which germline editing might be the only way and a prudent option f to proceed? It seems like the list is very, very small. So um, that's true, but there are a few and people People trot them out. Yeah, I don't think that's really the way to look at it okay. because uh, there are issues around the alternatives that aren't appreciated uh, as well as they should be. So people always talk about using the pre-implantation uh, diagnosis yeah. ahead of implantation. Yeah, and there are problems with that. One is generating enough embryos uh, in situations yeah. where. If you're, particularly if you're looking at a dominant condition um, where half the embryos may be getting the, uh, the mutant allele, yeah. um, generating enough embryos to be confident of uh, finding one that's unaffected. Yeah. Uh, the procedures themselves have their, their uh, potential impacts yes. on the health of the embryos. Yes. Um, so although it's true that we would at least initially think of doing the embryo editing uh, in the context of in vitro fertilization. Yeah. You can almost imagine a situation where you wouldn't need to do the pre-implantation uh, assessment of the, the uh, efficacy of the editing. Yeah. Um, and we would also need to find ways around mosaic uh, formation um, because the editor uh, yeah. continued to act after the one yeah. cell stage. Yeah. The other thing is that uh, this is something that I began to be aware of uh, at the first editing summit. Patient groups will tell you if you've got anything that can help us, give it to yes. us. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I don't think of the editing therapies, the germline therapies, as being mandated, but as being made available as alternatives right. uh, to things that are available right. for whatever the condition. Right. Last question. I guess we, we can never close the door on the fact that there may be an even better gene editing technology still to be discovered. What do you think? <laughs> I'll say two things about that. Okay. I've been asked this question more than once. Okay. Um, the first thing is, uh, I have no crystal ball. Yeah. Uh, the one I try to look into is really cloudy. But I think it, it's likely yeah. that if there is a, a next editing technology, it, like the previous ones, will come from nature. Very good. <laughs> All right. Well, Dana Carroll, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for sharing some stories from the last uh, 20, 25 years of gene editing. And good luck the rest of the way. My pleasure, Kevin. Thank you. <laughs>